Hello and welcome to the last edition for 2023 of The More the Merrier with Donna G. I'm Donna G. The following show features three segments from this past year. The first is my interview with Suvendrina Lina about the Palestinian play Rubble that ran at Theatre Passmarai in February. The second is my discussion of the documentary Shalom Puti with Tamash Warmser. That screened at the Toronto Jewish Film Festival earlier this year. And the last is my conversation with filmmaker Bernardo Ruiz about his documentary El Equipo that screened at the Toronto Canadian International Documentary Film Festival. The interviews have been edited for time and may contain references to dates already passed. This is Donna G. The show is The More the Merrier. My next guest and I will be discussing the play Rubble. She is Suvendrini Lina and she is both a writer and a physician. This is a piece that is a dramatic imagining of the celebrated poetry of Mahmoud Darwish and Lina Khalif Tufaha, and it features Lara Arabian, Paria Harava, Yusuf Kadura, Sam Khalile, and Rula Said. Forgive me if I've mispronounced any of those names. It's directed by Beatrice Paisano. Here now is my interview with Suvendrini Lina. You're a fascinating person to me with in terms of the arts and the science. You're a neurologist, um, but you started university studying history and now you're into theater as well. Did that come first in high school or where did that come about? I did my undergraduate uh, degree at University of Toronto and I was in, at Trinity College. And I, um, during that time, I... Uh, was involved in the dramatic society that was there and um, that was how I sort of discovered the wonders of live theater I directed two plays um, you know student plays but I my love of theater really uh, was born there during my yeah at U of T while you were studying history yeah exactly. okay mm-hmm. and then you moved into becoming a neurologist how did that transition happen well, it's a bit of, you know, these stories usually are protracted, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I um, after graduating, I worked as a community legal worker in Parkdale for a couple of years before I decided that actually I wanted to study medicine. And so I had to take some science courses, write the MCAT. I did a master's degree in environmental health in New York, and then finally ended up in medical school. Um several years later and and then studied neurology back again at U of T for my residency and I, I've stayed here at, to work um, as a staff. Proving that people you don't have to stay with one thing the road can lead you in many directions. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this performance this perform is it a performance piece or do I call it a play? How do I refer to rubble? Well, it's interesting that you should ask. Um, it is a play uh, with, you know, a cast, a script, um, but it is constructed both out of, you know, original writing as well as um, staging of poetry, um, which is sort of something that emerges from the writing and the way that poetry is interwoven uh, into the other parts of the text, but also in the way that the director approaches the work um, because of course poetry is 
um, in this case, it's the poetry mostly of Mahmoud Darwish, the Palestinian uh, poet. And it's quite abstract in, in some of its aspects. And, um, and therefore, you know, it's, it's being interpreted, it's being images are being, it evokes images, and those are being dramatized on the stage. And um, the actors interact with that in different ways. And, it, and so it does actually look at the relationship between or the differences between poetry and theater as well. Now you're credited as being the writer. Tell me what that means for a, a constructed piece like this. Right. So, I, I mean, it's, it's, I'm like the playwright in the conventional sense. Um, so I, when I started writing this piece, I actually contacted the, uh, the two poets whose work I um, was so interested in. One of the, one is Lena Kalaf Tufaha. She's an um, American Palestinian poet. And the other, uh, the translator of Darwish into English is Fadi Judah, also a poet himself, but a Palestinian physician also who lives in Texas. And so um, I just entered into a conversation with them about whether they would be interested in me and willing to let me use their poet, their poetic work in the, in, in a script. Um, and they, they said yes, which was delightful. Um, and what you see in the, you know, at the beginning of Rubble, one of the first scenes is a dramatization of Lina Kolaf Tefaha's poem called Run, Running Orders. Um, so it's, it, that poem describes in part a family whose home is about to be bombed and uh, they receive a warning call and then they react. And, and so that's dramatized in the initial scene of the play. And the rest of it sort of travels back and forward in time, but it reflects on life under siege, both in an abstract and a concrete way, um, using the Darwish poetry that, that sort of punctuates scenes of the family's life and history. And the poetry also sometimes is spoken by the actors in, in their conversation, but that is flagged because uh, when it, that happens, you're aware that um, it's a translation of an Arabic text. And so... Um, the Arabic is projected to flag that this is actually Darwish's poetry being used. So there are, it's, it's interesting because of course there's issues of a th authorship, right? Um, and so we've tried to be careful that when poetry is spoken, that's directly the Darwish translations, you, the, act, the audience knows this because it, they'll, see a they'll see a text, the Arabic text, and they'll hear obviously the English translation. Um, and when Lena, and Lena, Lena's poem is dramatized at the beginning, but it's also read in its entirety later on. I was very careful about, you know, what is interpretation, what is, um, you know, my imagination as a playwright, and what is actually the, the, the original text. So what is it that sparked the imagination in you in wanting to write this piece? So there are a lot of different factors, I think, playing into that. I think one part, obviously, is that when I was um, studying medicine, I did travel to Gaza, and this was in 2002, um, during another siege. And um, I worked with some of the Palestinian physicians there um, and sort of had a sense, you know, a very real sense of what it was like in their hospitals and how and the, the human impact of that conflict. And, um, and also, um, you know, was living with a family, uh, Palestinian family for, for that period, which is about two to three weeks. 
and um, so had a sense of what daily life was like. And when the in 2014, when I started writing this play, it was a um, the um, there was a you know a, a protracted course of, over the course of the summer another siege of Gaza, and um, those images of what was happening um, really evoked my experience of 2002. And so I, I felt like I needed to write about it. And when I read Lena's poem, I kind of saw this family that I had stayed with and what it might be like for them. And I wanted to share that, I think, with audiences and other people. Uh, I invite them to think about it. Um, but I also you know, have a history of really having read and loved a lot of these Palestinian poets who have reflected on this stuff a lot um, and wanted to also offer that to the audience. How did you gain this love of Palestinian writers? Um, I think there's a, there's a, you know, there's a lot of, again, a lot of different reasons, but I think for me coming from Sri Lanka um, and being uh, coming from a family that was displaced through civilian co through conflict and also a conflict where the, you know, the Sinhalese and the Tamils are, are somehow like also, you know, brother and sister um, in the way that I see that, you know, in, in um, this part of the world, um, Israelis and Palestinians, one could see that relationship as well. And I think, and that's something that Darwish represents in his writing as well. And, and so I think that, you know, what they write about, what he writes about and what the many other Palestinian poets write about resonates for me in terms of that shared um, aspects of shared history. Of course, every struggle is different and unique, right? Um, but uh, I also think that there's so many universal themes about exile, about identity, about, you know, love, about simple things like the sunset or what does it mean? What does a bridge mean? The way that poets deal with these things that are so evocative in, in Darwish's work and also Lena's. And so, uh, yeah, I think those things speak to me. And I think it's a, it's, um, a body of work that's not well known because most people don't read poetry in translation as much here. People um, don't have the experience of getting to hear poetry as much as they should read aloud, you know, or presented. And that, that's where it really comes to life for me. Can you introduce the audience um, to Mahmoud Darwish? I think that at the best way I would, one thing I'd like to say is that in, in a way, when I created this play, I don't mean to represent him so much as, as, as a poet, as the po as poetry and poets in a more general sense. But of course, his work is an, is a central inspiration. And um, he, you know, many people consider him to be the Palestinian national poet um, but his, his work is loved throughout the, the Arab world and anybody who really engages with contemporary poetry, 20, the poetry of the 20th century um, and reads poetry in translation will know of him. I think that's probably what I, what I want to say about it most. It's just, it's, it's such a moving body of work. It's a very powerful body of work and he's engaged with all the important questions that 20th century poets deal with around identity, around nationality, around um, migration. Uh, he, he engages with history um, in an extraordinary manner and, and what's fiction and what's fact and uh, and conflict and why conflict happens. It's, it's so many of our, our important themes and so much also that's that's just about the day-to-day -day and about, you know, drinking a cup of coffee or falling in love. All of those things are there as well. Do you remember how you discovered him? Uh, yeah, I, I actually was introduced to him uh, when I was studying history. I, I actually went to Cairo um, 
in my second year of university and spent about a, six weeks learning Arabic myself at the American University in Cairo. And, you know, I met Egyptian students there. And one of them um, introduced me to Darwish's poetry at that time. And it was just sort of a revelation to me uh, when I, when I be began to, to read and listen to him. And did you read and listen in Arabic or the translated translations? Well, yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I would listen in Arabic and pick up pieces or fragments, but I, I have never been fluent enough in Arabic to really appreciate him in his own tongue. And so I've always been dependent on really good translations. And I, I was so lucky to find Fadi's translation, which again, also is, as a work in its own right, really resonates with me. And what about Lina Kalaf Tufaha? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Lena's poem, I read actually first on the internet, as many people did. I don't know if, um, if you follow, um, you know, the politics of, of this region, you, you'll know that 2014 was a particularly brutal time. Um, and she wrote this poem, Running Orders, uh, in response to that, in the middle of that conflict, and the poem itself went viral, um, and traveled across the world in different ways, um, people would sort of pick it up and read it. It was translated into 20 or 30 different languages. And there's a whole, you know, you can look on YouTube and look at this poem and, and see different people reading it um, as a form of expressing solidarity with what families living in Gaza were, were going through. Um, and I think what's beautiful about this poem is it just, it really conveys, you know, the everydayness of everyday life there which makes um, the situation relatable to people who are not there. And that's something that is so important. Um, and Alina and I, over the years, in a way, I would say we've, we've become friends. And um, I just see her as a fellow traveler, in a sense, somebody who's trying through their writing to reflect on contemporary events and shift people's perspectives and sort of open up new avenues for conversation around things that are difficult. This is being presented by Aluna Theatre and Theatre Pass Marai. Mm -hmm. So what is your role um, in between these two um, companies? Well, I mean, they, um, the way it works generally in Canadian sort of independent theatre settings is, you know, um, sometimes a play will be written in, or you'll start writing a play in a, in a playwright's unit. So this play, I was in a unit at Cahoots Theatre, um, in 2014, I guess, 2015, when I started to write it. And that was when Marjorie Chan first saw the script and, and expressed an interest in it. Um, and then, um, you know, I kept working on it. Uh, I got some development money from Nightwood Theatre and also was invited to, um, like, to support the writing. And then I was invited to um, a playwright's um, re um, residence in Grossmorn that's run by um, Playwrights in Montreal, which is a wonderful sort of development incubator of Canadian work. Um, so I went to this retreat, you know, there were playwrights from all over the country. I had seven days to really work deeply on it uh, with a um, dramaturge named Emma Tibaldo, who's amazing. Um, and so the work really moved ahead. And then I was able to present it back to um, Marjorie and she thought, well, we need some partners to make this work and reached out to Aluna um, because they have a track record of sort of very political work, um, you know, um, 
and, and an ability to understand and work with really abstract text as well. So I think, and just a, a beautiful company. So I think it's been a great collaboration for me because I feel like um, the work has a real home with these two companies. And it's it's being presented at, at Theatre Past Marai. Were you involved with any of the casting or any of the design anything of that or are you just are you the writer and you've passed it on to uh the other talents involved well there's a fine line I think there right because um with theater uh you write a script and then you know some writers are very very involved especially in a first production um in terms of design and casting uh, I am a physician in my training, right? So as although I'm a writer, um, and I this is the third play that I've had written that I've written that's been produced, and I I feel like yeah, I'm a playwright, but I'm not trained in theater in some of the ways that many other theater artists are, and so I am careful about how I sort of intervene in in these processes. I I really enjoy the work and the vision that others bring, and and I think for me that's why one of the reasons why I love theatrical creation it's because it is very collaborative so um you know even if even the cast will have a very strong impact on how um things eventually um are presented and, un- and interpreted in a very collaborative room and Bea Pisano if you know her she she runs a very collaborative room where um everybody has a voice and and she's tremendously good at at taking that the best of all of that and synthesizing it into a um, a solid and unique vision, which would be her directorial vision. I think, you know, it's the best of both worlds in some ways. So I sort of step back um, after the text is solid, it, that I feel it's solid is what I've done here. Have you seen any of the rehearsals? Yes, yes, of course. I've been invited to attend rehearsals and um, I've just, it's, it's always a magic for me to, um, to see that translation from page to actors embodying these words it's it's, it really feels miraculous and the cast is fantastic I'm really really uh, happy about them Um, I can just imagine when you walk into rehearsals and see your your lines being expressed and the the design and how they interpret it must be so Mm -hmm. exciting it is it's it's really like it's such a great gift that you get from the actors and the company and the designers that they invest so much significance in in the in the work and are willing to throw so much of themselves into it and transform it in that way you are a physician Mm -hmm. so do do you often get reactions like mine when um people go oh you're a doctor and a writer because I know in other countries people their love of poetry is mixed with often politics and other things but not so much here in Canada that I've noticed I suppose you make a really good point actually I hadn't really stopped to think about it that it's different here than it is in some other places right um it's funny I think maybe because I don't know I don't know what explains it but it's a really interesting observation you just made I do get this reaction that it's a a strange juxtaposition I mean on on the other hand I I work with a number of other physicians who are you know either writers or artists or I mean different kinds of writers actors and we have um, you know a kind of group of people that are really interested in medicine and the humanities and how um, humanities education and just a love of the arts can um, 
enrich medical learning and actually also is so important to medical practice. Um, so we, I'm not alone in this sort of straddling two roles, especially not in the U of T environment. Um, so I, I feel like, um, you know, although it's unusual, it's not maybe as unusual as people think. I think it's because we don't hear about it often then. I don't think doctors necessarily are so good at self-promoting. We, we like in what we do, we're always self-effacing, right? We, we sort of are in a room to, to, to hear a patient diagnose a problem and then come up with a solution and then execute that solution. Where is the self in that? Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and that's fine because, because you don't really want to be in the emergency room learning who your doctor is at a, as a person. That's really not what it, that space is. No, for. not the right environment. Right. <laughs> but, but the consequence of that, I think, is that maybe you don't know who doctors really are. Right. Do like you, people may have quite a stereotyped view of what it means to be a physician and physicians don't have a lot of practice, you know, expressing other aspects of their self. But it comes out amongst you that they write and then you have this other the secondary bond yeah and I mean I'll give you an example like I do teach seminars for um doctors and doctors in training that involve theater practice and so last semester we we dramatized um a, a theatrical version of Camus Plague and we invited people from the U of T community to come and listen and uh it, the the room was full like the 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 there were people standing. It was mostly a medical audience and I had no trouble recruiting, you know, I, this was a collaboration between U of T and McMaster, but we had no trouble recruiting actors to, to do the work and uh, from among our medical students. And next semester, there's a program that I'm working on with Tarragon where we're gonna be reading plays and writing and we have 21 medical trainees that have already signed up, we had to close the course and there were still people who wanted to get in. So there's a, there's a hunger for this and there's a, there's actually, you know, work and activity. It's just, I think not, not well known that it happens. I think that's an exciting future for theater, you know, to have that, to have that blending. It's, it's an interesting point, right? So I think, you know, in these periods where the arts are so much under attack in terms of funding and what the meaning and the value of it is, right? I think you can see this space that's being made in medicine as very positive, um, as a way of actually appreciating and seeing the, the value that an artistic lens brings to everything. But on the other hand, I don't like to see art instrumentalized and used to sort of um, meet other objectives. I think it's really, really important to preserve that space of art for its for its own sake, right? To keep the creativity unfettered. Suvandrini, thank you so much for joining me to talk about your role in uh, Rubble and writing it, and you know, sharing a bit about yourself as well. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thank you for the opportunity to speak with you and for your, for your interview. It was lovely to speak with you today. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The More the Merrier with Donna G on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm playing interviews from my archives. Up next is my interview with Tamash Wormser about the documentary Shalom Puti. Tamash, I had so many conflicting feelings watching uh, Shalom Puti, which is about this small African Jewish settlement in Uganda. 
Did you also have conflicted feelings as well? Yes, of course. I mean, from the beginning, it was a very, uh, it was a remarkable story that I, I happened to come up on um, while I was doing my previous um, film, uh, The Wandering Muse, that, um, that was examining what is Jewish identity through the music of the diaspora. And um, and while I was there uh, at this village, um, a group of um, Israeli rabbis arrived, and uh, and I realized that there is another film happening here <laughs> right in front of me that is so complex. So yeah, of course, I I I think it it was meant to be a somewhat disturbing film. Um, to to open dialogues and, and to see how people do good things for bad reasons and uh, bad things for good reasons. I, I and I was an outsider in in both groups as well. Can you explain outsider in what sense to the audience? I'm I am Jewish. I have a very strong Jewish identity, but I'm not religious. I'm I'm not following any rules um, and um, I just I'm an atheist and so were my my parents so are my parents and my grandparents but you know nevertheless they had to go through the holocaust so it was definitely a very strong uh, identity but but that for them that really didn't mean much I mean they accepted me as a Jew but like I was definitely an outsider because of this and I was an outsider from the rabbi's uh, point of view as well, because I mean, we represent very different politics and uh, very different understandings. Yet uh, there was a, you know, a mutual trust uh, that uh, developed. Yes, that's the issue. Um, that's the huge word that was in the back of my mind is, is trust. I am watching this film through the gaze of a black woman um, and colonization is a part of my history and colonization also not only in terms of, you know, the middle passage, but also of uh, religion and primarily Christianity. So here we are two outsiders watching this film about um, Africans for you being, you know, pale skinned for me being dark skinned and seeing um, outsiders go into Africa. I waffle between do I trust them? Do I not trust them? It was it was very much my experience in Africa to to witness how um, the religion, religious colonialism happened um, so much that they 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 lost their own traditions and their own rituals and and what and, and there is a very beautiful I, I think very beautiful and symbolic scene in the film where they are talking about taking out a tree by the roots because uh, because some people were worshiping their their ancestors under that uh, tree and um, and that's not acceptable. Um, so, so it just it just shows that it you know they were really they really lost their own uh, religion. Yet they are so spiritual. They are more spiritual Jews than 
than the Jews are, you know, than most Jews are. Right. That that tree was so symbolic to me, and it pained me to see the removal of that of their of their culture of their roots in a sense but also um the way they practice judaism in terms of incorporating their dances in their orthodoxy was also i thought well they still get to keep that part and i'm it's a fascinating film and for you to actually be there and witness there must have been i mean besides the tree there must have been days where you're thinking, I can't believe what I'm seeing. And what am I seeing? Well, you know, when I arrived there, it was uh, just just like half an hour before Shabbat was starting. Like I had no idea where, I, you know. So I arrived in this village where there's no electricity. Uh, there's no no water, no running water. Like uh, the women, typically women have to carry the water on their head. Um, to the village, um, they uh, they live in extreme poverty. What I thought poverty was, but on the other hand, I I I saw such a, a wealth and richness that was uh, like really touching, you know, because I never witnessed that. It was like an incredible solidarity that if somebody needed help, they were all there, and yeah, I was very touched by that. And and they were they accepted me because I stayed in in the village like uh, with them for the first uh, few days. I mean, you know, after a while, I needed to plug my batteries and like I developed a really good and trusting relationship with the rabbis. It was much more difficult because they didn't uh, trust me at first. The, I'm talking about the Israeli rabbis, so I had to really gain their trust, and that took a couple of years. You know that it's yeah. interesting that the uh, that the Ugandans trusted you, but the rabbis didn't. So yeah. this issue of trust goes back and forth. And when I saw the American rabbis, I was like, Shlomo Riskin, what is Shlomo Riskin, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, doing in Uganda, doing in this small village? And I thought, okay, here again come outsiders, you know, going in. And I mean, the whole reason they're Jewish in the first place is because their leader was betrayed by the British. It's like he won some territory for the British and they thought he would be king and then he wasn't king. And then he, you know, he said, uh, he looked through the Bible and said, okay, we're Jewish. So all of this is happening. Um, what was your relationship with uh, with the American uh, rabbis, did they trust you initially? Um, no, no. So, but but they are they are um, like all these. I, I call them Israeli rabbis because, in fact, they are coming from uh, from the settlements, um, and they they are all Anglophone, uh, either Australians, Americans, or Canadians, um, and. Um, and they live in one community in Efrat. They are much more inclusive than most of Israeli society, I would say. Initially, as I, as I mentioned, they stopped. Uh, like I, I agreed with one of the rabbis that I can film, and then when they showed up and they saw me, they 
told me that I cannot film. And then I had to sort of make my way back, like I presented uh, my film in Israel, my previous film, and then I met them and I, you know, they accepted me at the end. And then, you know, at the end, we had a pretty good relationship with uh, with all of them. I mean, we, you know, we are very different. We think very different about just about everything. But there was like a mutual respect that was uh, developed somehow. Mm -hmm. I was surprised that they admitted to the racism um, as to the reason behind why um, some of the Africans couldn't go to Israel um, to study, why they had so many problems with the visa and the acceptance. And here you have this devout village wanting to learn from Israel and coming up um, against the roadblocks. I was very surprised that um, the rabbis admitted, you know, let's face it, it's it's racism, why they have to go yes. through so much trouble with the visas. Did yes. that yes. did that surprise you that they actually said that? Well, you know, the, you know, the film is also about the different degrees of racism, you know, like racism is just not like one, one tone, right? You know, for me, like, you know, like I'm, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not a believer, I don't believe in God, but like for me, what it means to be Jewish is to be anti-racist. I mean, it's, uh, you know, to be on the side of the oppressed. That is, you know, mm -hmm. and for me, it's very hard to comprehend that how can people call themselves Jewish and be racist? Like, I just think, you know, for me, it's very hard. Like, it, this is really not my interpretation. But my films always deal with these kind of things that that my interpretation is this, your interpretation is the opposite. And, you know, we can be both right, I guess. But, you know, that complexity, like bringing out those, those different truths about one thing creates this, uh, this um, reality somehow, you know. You phrased it very well, bringing out these different truths. That's what I see in your film, which is why I had so many mixed emotions um, watching it. I like the fact that you chose not to have a narrator and we're just observing what's going on with the people and the different community. I wonder, um, it took seven years to to develop this film, to, to capture these, these moments. And um, were there any times where you thought, I don't think this is going where it's where I wanted to go. Uh, no, I I didn't. I basically I in seven years I went uh, five times, and each time I would uh, stay for like three weeks usually, and um, I um, I was just you know just amazed you know like I was like amazed about about the situation like how 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 things were developing and. Um, I would, you know, it, I just had a complete fascination, even though things were not going at all. Like originally, the project was that I would follow them to Israel. Like we thought that after the after the the official conversion, which is really not a conversion, is more like a recognition in reality because these people have been Jews for hundred years. Like you know. <laughs> 
So, and their names are Moshe and uh, Abraham and uh, so on. Um, so, so they are very much Jewish. But like after this, uh, this uh, conversion, I thought that they would be accepted. Of course, they were not. So, so the film went to a different direction than I thought it would. But, um, but you never know what uh, will end up happening, right? Yeah. Have the villagers seen your film? No, they haven't. They have seen my previous film. And that just that was a fantastic experience because they they don't have electricity and they they you know like these people you know they don't watch TV um, they they get together and they sing and they dance and like you know like they and it's just beautiful um, how like how they can sing like pitch perfect but I I had to rent like a generator and uh, and. Uh, um, we had to bring some gas and, and we projected my previous film like that. And I realized that they have never seen a film in their life. You know, like this was the first film they, they have ever seen. And, uh, <laughs> and so it was quite special. And at the, at the end, they wanted to watch it again. So, you know, um, so we did. It was a funny experience, but but this film they haven't seen, and I'm I really hope to go there and present it uh, um, this year. I definitely, but the rabbis haven't seen it either because, oddly enough, nobody in Israel has uh, chosen the film. Um, although I believe it's very much about Israel, but, um, but no festival or or uh, TV were interested so far. Um, mm. So, 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 yeah. None of the protagonists have seen the film. Interesting. Uh, but it has been shown, like in ten countries, and you know, it's it's been going around. The, that the fact that they haven't recognized the film by screening it at any of their festivals also adds to your to your film and the story that you're trying to tell. Tomas, there's just so many levels to the film that you have made, and I can't imagine what it is like to to be you and be surrounded by so many contradictions all at the same time from moment to moment is this the most bewildering documentary you've ever made well i i, I cannot really judge that it's a very different uh, film that i've ever made uh, but i can say that about uh, quite a few of my films <laughs> This is very different, and it's it's sort of I I just uh, sort of fell into this uh, whole uh, uh, fascinating story that, and I I just love the fact that there are all these different layers, right? As yes, in, you know, like it's seemingly the white people are coming uh, to save uh, the the black people, but sort of the opposite is happening too. Right, you know, like I, I was fascinated by by the richness of this um, this film that I I find is actually it's, it's more of a typical African story than a typical Jewish story. This is very unusual for for Jews, but very typical for Africans. But it was also beautiful to see um, how, like over these seven years, the role of the women have drastically changed. And um, and I was quite excited to portray that as well, because, you know, first time I arrived in the village, um, um, just before Shabbat, as I told you, 
the the first woman who came to greet me like people came to greet me and the first woman who came to me took my hand and kneeled down and i didn't know why she kneeled down so i kneeled down as well and like everybody started laughing that you know you're not supposed to kneel down it's only the women and i was like well if she kneels down i kneel down so so and then from that like uh, i got the trust of the women as well you know and uh, and I, I did interview them through an interpreter because many of them didn't speak English and then mm-hmm. you know, they, they, their, their own issues and some of those issues are pretty serious. And, you know, the women are very in a very difficult situation, um, but in that community and in general in Africa, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's not easy. It made me happy to see that one woman, I've forgotten her name, but the fact that she was now one of the leaders and improving things, not only for the women, but for the village um, in terms of what she was, was doing and the planting and everything yes. that, uh, that she was doing. Uh, Tamash, I could talk to you forever about this film and we still would have more to talk about <laughs> in the next lifetime. Um, so thank you so much for for making this documentary. Thanking you for making a film that is non-judgmental, that just presents um, the facts as they are. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much and thank you for this uh, interview. It's been a great pleasure. This is Donna G. Thank you so much for tuning in to The More The Merrier. If you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me via the CIUT website, www.ciut.fm. The links to my socials and my podcast, where you can find all of these interviews that I feature today, right on my Red Circle platform. You can also listen to me on Spotify and Amazon and all the other platforms. Here now is my chat midway with uh, Bernardo Ruiz about El Equipo, and we pick it up where I'm asking Bernardo um, more about the legendary anthropologist, Dr. Clyde Snow. I'd never heard of Clyde Snow, um, which surprised me. I don't know if I'd forgotten about him. Or what? So please uh, introduce Clyde to my listeners, please. Sure. I mean, I to me, it doesn't surprise me that um, you're obviously have you're pretty erudite and have like you you interview the world through your show. Um, I similarly hadn't heard of Clyde Snow when I started the project. Um, I did become interested in the work of the Argentine forensic anthropology team about a decade ago. Uh, actually, as far back as 2000, it was before 2012. Um, and as I began speaking to members of the team and doing research, uh, they immediately began referencing Clyde Snow, um, who was this legendary American forensic anthropologist, um, originally from Texas. Uh, but, you know, if you see photographs and footage of him, he's a bit of a, a character. I mean, he's cigar chomping or smoking a pipe, uh, usually wearing a fedora, speaking in these kind of um, punchy or sometimes enigmatic phrases. He he seemed to have this persona that was ready made for film. 
years later, I think I would understand that he'd cultivated that persona as a way to garner media attention for some of these cases and issues that wouldn't necessarily have um, gained attention. But uh, Snow ended up serving as a teacher and mentor to this group of Latin American students. Um, the, the shorthand of the story is basically that in 1984, he traveled to Argentina at the invitation of a group of mothers and grandmothers who were uh, searching for their, their missing children or, or looking to identify uh, missing loved ones. And when Snow arrived, despite not speaking Spanish and I think being somewhat naive politically um, about what had happened under Argentina's recent dictatorship, he just perhaps didn't understand the full extent of, of what had happened. Nonetheless, he was able to surmise that a lot of the established medical personnel, the scientists and anthropologists who who'd, um, many had collaborated with the previous dictatorship. So rather than work with them in his efforts to identify the missing and the dead, what he decided to do was seek out a team. And uh, eventually, as the film shows, he found this connected with this group of 19, 20 and 20 something year olds and trained up this team. Um, and that initiated this uh, four decades long collaboration working all over the globe. Now for the listeners, tell, tell them um, some of the famous people that he had unearthed previously, just to put um, his, his knowledge, his experience in context. So, I mean, that's the thing about Clyde Snow is that he was this legendary figure. So he very famously helped identify the skull of the um, Nazi war criminal and Dr. Josef Mengele. Um, Clyde had also helped identify the victims of the serial killer John Wayne Gacy, um, who was best known as, you know, as dressing up as a clown. So the 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 cases he had worked on were very high profile cases. And also, I think to me, there's this interesting link. Um, there's so much true crime, um, you know, people people call it content, but there's so much true crime programming and shows and podcasts out there. Um, and Clyde Snow is this fascinating bridge between that world of, you know, what's considered traditional true crime and the what we show in the film, which is, you know, the 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 serial killers of the state um, where it's, you know, generals and uh, heads of state in some cases who are ordering the execution and mass disappearance of people. And, and Clyde, I think, you know, made that connection himself very explicitly. He did so in a number of, of press interviews, but he he saw a very clear line between the types of serial killer cases he'd worked on earlier in his career in Texas and the Texas Panhandle in Oklahoma, and then later what he saw in Guatemala and Argentina, um, uh, the the murders had been and atrocities that had been committed at the hands of generals and military personnel. Right, and this is the link is the fact that it's a humanitarian issue, human rights issue, and I'm not sure Bernardo if you're aware, but. Uh, in Canada, we also have this human rights issue with our First Nations people, our First Nations children, who, you know, I didn't, I always associated this word um, disappeared 
with other countries until the bodies of the graves of children, First Nations children were discovered here. In Canada, we also have our disappeared and their First Nations uh, children and also missing and murdered, you know, Aboriginal women as well. So we're not immune. So this is a global uh, issue, which is what I connected with also with this world of the disappeared. And this team of young um, anthropology students and their journey is fascinating. And, you know, I love the photo in, in the hot dogs guide of them as young people, you could tell, you know, it, it, it's from the 80s. And um, tell me um, about, introduce some of the team uh, to our listeners so they become familiar with, you know, that with them as people. Sure. And I and to your really excellent point about the First Nations people, the one of the founding members of this team, uh, Luis Fondebreeder, has actually consulted in Canada, uh, specifically around the disappearances of, of women in Canada. So I, um, I really appreciate that point. And I, I think that, some, you know, I'm in New York right now, I'm in the US. Uh, similarly, I think there's a type of, I, I would call it arrogance in the United States, as if these issues of enforced disappearances or, you know, forced disappearances, um, as if this were, this were solely an issue uh, that happens on foreign shores. And we, we know that's absolutely not the case. No. Um, extrajudicial killings um, and uh, disappearances happen um, with on a regular basis here in the United States. And, and to your point, exactly, uh, typically with the populations that have been most marginalized by um, these powerful countries. And clearly, in the, in the case of the United States, the U.S. has played the significant role in a lot of the conflicts we see in the film, in Argentina, in Guatemala, in, in Mexico. So it's um, um, part of what, what I, I, I think happens organically in the film is we highlight those connections and and try to to you know make those bigger universal points to say this is something that happens um, everywhere. And I, I think in that regard, it's it's interesting. The character of Clyde Snow is interesting to me because he's a white man from Texas, from what in the U.S. we would call you know like a red state, a very conservative area. He grew up in a fairly conservative way, and I I think um, what you see in the film is that he receives a political education from the students and he was his, his his politics were were really transformed um i would argue and he certainly had a big shift in the way he thought about things and how he worked with people um in large part due to this relationship with this these young latin american students who are you know much more progressive um than than he was so I, I think that's also an interesting dynamic in the film that that I was interested um, in. Um, and and to your point, it's it was there there really there were many there were there was a small group of students who would eventually form the Argentine forensic anthropology team. Uh, but in those early days, I in the film we really focus on three. It was Patricia Bernardi. Her, her nickname was Pato, which means duck. Um, there's Mimi Doretti, who would go on to win a MacArthur Genius Grant for her work, and, and Luis Fondebreeder, who I mentioned, um, who has done work um, in Canada. And all that, three of them were friends. It's uh, It was very, I didn't expect that connection with Luis, uh, that he worked here in Canada. But another thing that struck me was um, the women 
So I was very gratified to see that both Mimi and uh, and Pato were part of this forensic team, you know, young women in the field doing the work that they were doing and, you know, not not initial, initially trained, you know, as you said, um, Clyde got these students, thought he could get experts, had to go with these students and he mentored them. And it was great to see there was a particular scene that involves um, a spoon. And I don't want to give it away. So listeners, you're just going to have to um, at some point see this film to, to see what I'm talking about, the strength of these women. Um, you know, I, getting, I, go ahead. I no, no, I don't mean to interrupt. I, mean, I, I completely agree. And in fact, my entry point into the film was really through Mimi Doretti, who, as I mentioned before, has been she's been recognized internationally for her work. And is a really extraordinary person. Um, when you think back to how young uh, she and her colleagues were, I mean, I think she was 22 when she first started doing this work. And it was immediately after the Argentine dictatorship in, in 84 and 85, um, the people that they were beginning to search for and the graves you know, for which they were beginning to exhume, they were of people uh, they're her age and their age, uh, you know, who've been executed by by the military or people attached to the military. So there was um, a high degree of risk. So I think the kind of bravery of Mimi and, and Pato in particular, um, all of the members, it just can't be overstated. They were, um, you know, they were certainly young and idealistic, but but not unaware of what the risks were yeah. and put themselves on the line to to do this work. Right. Um, and I, I think their stories are pretty remarkable because this wasn't a, a life path that they um, <laughs> chose for themselves, but it ended up being their their life's work. And, you know, so we talk about Argentina and, you know, then we then we go to uh, El Mozote in, in El Salvador. And, you know, that's a heartbreaking scene. And again, we're talking about marginalized people, First Nations people. Well, exactly. And in that case, um, one of the things that I think uh, is significant, moving, and was also very hard as we were putting the film together, um, Mimi, who I mentioned before, she had actually herself began, began documenting uh, their their work. So uh, a lot of the footage, um, this is a film that's made almost entirely out of archival footage, uh, you know, so-called found footage or archive, personal archive from the team members themselves or from Clyde Snow. Um, this footage, uh, I think the for El Mosote, for that sequence where we're looking at this, um, basically this, this, this massacre on the part of the military that had been trained by the U.S. in El Salvador, and it was a massacre involving um, you know, hundreds of women and children uh, and, and elderly folks, it's um, in, an incredibly intense um, sequence to document. And it's Mimi herself um, filming much of this footage that we see in the film. And I, I think that without giving anything too crucial away, um, there's a moment in that sequence where Mimi um, is looking in the pocket of a little dress of a, of a little girl that had been killed. And inside that pocket, is a little plastic red horse. And there's something about that detail that I think uh, 
you know, breaks her in the moment. And I think, you know, as filmmakers, it's just a moment that I, um, it, it continually, um, it gets me and it speaks to the horror of that moment of these kind of uncontrolled, um, you know, mass ex executions. And again, the, the, the critical role that this team has played, not just in, in Latin America and Central America, but, you know, in countries throughout the globe, they have um, collected evidence for human rights trials and in, yeah. in many cases been able to hold the perpetrators accountable. Not, not always, because this is the world that we live in. But the film does show that, um, you know, through through their scientific wor work, they have been able to hold many perpetrators accountable. Thank you for tuning in to The More the Merrier. This is Donna G signing off for 2023, leaving you now with Peace is the Only Way by Lenka Lichtenberg and Rula Said. Der ganze Welt so sein Schuss.